Hello, fellow fiends. Welcome to another episode of Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces. I am your creator and host, Cassiopeia. You can catch me every Friday with brand new episodes of the creepiest and spookiest content. And if you subscribe to the Patreon or anchor.fm pages, you can get bonus episodes every other Tuesday, a merchandise discount for anything in the Wiccan Fay shop at pizzaandpigtails.com. You also get a thank you from me because, you know, that's the most important thing, right? <laughs> My love and appreciation of your love and support. Um, also, you get a swag box that's just kind of a little thank you, um, and that depends on which tier you decide to go with, what comes in that swag box, uh, but go ahead and check that out. Also, if maybe you can't really subscribe, but you still want to support, I do have a cash app. I have a Venmo uh, purchasing items in the shop. The merchandise that includes the Wiccan Fake Candles, that includes the Creepy Cases Spooky Spaces merchandise, that includes the Magical World of Cassiopeia merchandise, all of that as well. Um, also, just liking, following, subscribing, listening, tagging, commenting, interacting with the podcast because that also helps the podcast get seen and um, brings more listeners and more support and everything like that. Also, if you are a small business owner or a big business owner, I don't discriminate, I do have ad space available as well. And if you send me an email at creepycases.spookyspaces at gmail.com, I can send you my uh, packages and they're budget friendly for those small business owners. Uh, so don't think that it's going to be crazy to get your content and your items and everything seen. So um Without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. So this week's episode, imagine receiving a letter telling you to end an affair you're supposedly having. Now, you ignore this letter because what? And only then do you receive a second letter and a third and so on and so on. Each letter getting more and more aggressive and threatening. Now, after months of this, you turn to family for help. You start your own investigation. However, it really goes nowhere. So when you're at your wit's end, you turn to the police for help. But with no real way to trace where the letters are coming from or who's writing them, the case leads nowhere. Well, you find out that you're not the only one receiving letters. Many residents around your town of only 12,000 are also getting these letters. Until one night, an anonymous caller rings your home telephone. Your husband grabs his gun and goes out, thinking that he knows who the caller is. They also think that this person's the writer of the letters. His truck mysteriously goes off the road and he dies that very night in a freak car accident. His ABV level, though, is twice the legal limit. Now, someone gets arrested, charged, and convicted. Nightmare over, right? Well, now, here's the thing. Found like the crazy storyline to a dramatic soap opera, but this actually happened in the town of Circleville, Ohio. While 
It mostly focused on one family. Numerous residents of this small town received mysterious and threatening letters, making this one of the most intriguing and disturbing criminal cases in American history. So buckle up and join me for the absolute crazy and creepy case of the Circleville Letter Writer. listener of the podcast, you'll most likely remember the episode, The Westfield Watcher, from season one. If you're new, I definitely recommend checking it out. It's similar to this case. However, this one goes beyond the craziness that The Westfield Watcher did. In March of 1976, Mary Gillespie, a longtime resident of Circleville, received a letter with no return address, postmarked almost 30 miles away, written in distinct block lettering. It was vile and it was ominous. And it stated, Mrs. Gillespie, stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about meeting him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified, and everything will be over soon. Now, Mary ignored this letter and denied the alleged affair. And her and her husband, Ron, were really well-respected members of the community. They grew up in Circleville, they were high school sweethearts, and they actually stayed in town to raise their two children. Now, Mary was a bus driver for the West Falls School District, and the Massey that the letter speaks of is Gordon Massey. He was the superintendent of the same school district, who was also married with a child of his own. Now, Mary was shaken, but as I said, she denied having the affair and ignored the letter. But eight days later, she received another letter, and then another, and at first, she actually kept the letters a secret even from her, fr- her family and friends, until her husband, Ron, began receiving his own letters. Now, in his first letter, the anonymous writer wrote, Mr. Gillespie, your wife is seeing Gordon Massey. You should catch them together and kill them both. He doesn't deserve to live. When Ron didn't take action much less go out and kill his wife, Mary, and her supposed lover, Gordon, the threats begin to escalate. Gillespie, you have had two weeks and done nothing. You are a pig. Make her admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CB. This uh, CB actually means like the CB radios. Posters, signs, billboards until the truth comes out. Only pigs ride motorcycles. Good hunting in your red and white truck on your way to work. I followed him for weeks since last summer and have seen her meet with him several times. The writer then began to send letters to the school's vice principal about the affair. I shall send you proof about driver number 62917. She also has a child in school there now. I shall prove this shortly. I expect him to be discharged. 
you'll see that I am telling the truth. Of course, no proof was ever actually brought about, but whomever sent the letter knew Mary's uh, driver number, so they had to be connected to the school or to Mary somehow. And Mary was finally so spooked that she showed her brother-in-law, Paul Freshour, who worked at the local Anheuser-Busch brewery, um, and his wife, Karen. And she felt that she knew who the letter writer was, and she thought it was a fellow bus driver named David Longberry, who had kind of made a move on her, but she turned him down. And so she thought that maybe he was rejected, um, or he felt rejected, and was behind the letters to kind of get back at her, maybe make Ron mad at her for thinking that she had an affair, that she was having this affair, um, to embarrass her, to kind of get rumors going about, things like that. Now, Ron thought Gordon Massey was actually behind the letters, which I would think this is kind of a really odd kind of go about because he talked about finding them together and killing them. Um, and I don't know why you would send letters like this. If you're going to admit to an affair, just come out and admit to it. Um, but Ron confronted Massey anyway. And when he, Massey, revealed that he was also getting letters, threatening to slash his tire and cut his brakes, Ron kind of backed off from this, um, from this theory. Now, knowing the writer was close to them, they decided to start their own investigation and even wrote a letter to the Circleville writer. Paul Freshour was actually the one who wrote the letter, and in it he stated that they claimed they knew who the writer was, and the letter stopped for a short period of time. But when they started back up, they grew more and more aggressive and menacing. And one, later, one letter actually stated that there would be a booby trap on Mary's bus. And sure enough, a device was actually found attached to her exhaust pipe one morning. Now, the situation escalated when Ron received a, th a letter threatening his life if he didn't stop his investigation. But, of course, he didn't. And that was when... A letter came in including the couple's daughter, Tracy, who was just 12 years old at this time, and it claimed that Massey had been sexually abusing her and even threatened her life. And it said, it's your daughter's turn to pay for what you've done. I shall come out there and put a bullet in that little girl's head. Now, clearly, this person who's writing these letters is very, very mentally unstable, especially to threaten a 12-year-old girl's life just because her mother is supposedly having an affair. Now, Mary and Ron were desperate for help at this point, so they decided that they were finally just going to turn all of the letters over to the police. Now, Investigators wiretapped phones, they watched homes, and they even worked with the United States Postal Service to intercept any letters, but they ended up no closer to finding who was responsible because there was just no forensic evidence. Plus, let's keep in mind, this was also the 1970s, so this was before, you know, the technology that we have today. 
And so it was, the letters were getting quite out of hand. The letters being sent to local business owners, corporations, political figures, um, exposing a lot of secrets and private information. And no one was safe. And so many residents changed their numbers and unlisted their information to avoid being a target. Now, some of the letters were very specific. Private details, affairs, sex lives, uh, domestic and child abuse allegations, accusations. Um, and police knew that this had to be someone within the community with access to all of this personal information. And a lot of the letters actually contained threats of violence. Police interviewed numerous residents, took countless handwriting samples, which now I will say that I feel it's actually kind of easy to change up your handwriting. And I know that there's like handwriting experts and even if you change your handwriting, certain uh, loops or certain ways that you make letters can kind of be like they are specific to you. But even with all of the forensic evidence that they took, um, they were unable to find any conclusive evidence. And they even put up a $10,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest. But all of their efforts were in vain because they found nothing. Now, the Circleville writer made good on their threats. Signs began to pop up all around the town, most heavily along Mary's bus route. And they said horrible things about her, Gordon Massey, and her young daughter, Tracy. Ron would wake up early every morning before Mary would leave for work to go and collect all of these signs to spare her and Tracy the embarrassment and emotional turmoil of seeing what was being said. Now, Paul Freshour described the toll that it took, saying, quote, Ron was devastated and distraught. He didn't get much sleep during that period of time in his life. He was frantic and would drive around an hour or two in the morning before his shift began, looking for any obscene posted signs. Ron worked very hard to figure out what it was really all about and to have the problem solved, end quote. Now, in August of 1977, Mary took a trip to Florida with her sister as a sort of getting away from the stress and worries that she had been going through over the past year. And with Mary gone, Ron was left to deal with the letters and signs all on his own. But on the evening of August 19th, tragedy struck. The phone rang at the Gillespie home. Tracy said she heard her father shouting in the next room, and the caller apparently declared that he was observing the house and knew what tr Ron's truck looked like. Well, Ron told his children he recognized the voice and he was going to confront them. He grabbed his 22 caliber, caliber revolver and left in his 1971 Ford pickup truck. The sequence of events that played out after this are still a mystery, um, but not long after he left, Ron's truck was found slammed into a tree at the end of the road. And Ron, who wasn't wearing a seatbelt, was found dead inside. Now, some point before he died, Ron had fired his gun, um, but no bullet hole or bullet was found. And authorities, including Pickaway County Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe, searched the entire area but failed to even find the casing. For the bullet. 
which I feel there's no bullet hole, there's no bullet, there's no casing. Somebody definitely either cleaned up the scene or something happened away from the home and then maybe this accident, um, the truck hitting the tree happened on the way back, um, but nobody, nobody knows. Now, the toxicology report revealed that Ron's blood alcohol level was 0.16. Now, that's twice the legal limit. However, Ron's family and friends and coworkers and just about everybody who knew him said that Ron rarely ever drank. And his two children said that he wasn't drinking at all the day before leaving um, when he got the phone call. So it would have really taken a lot of alcohol in a very small amount of time, which I'm not saying that's impossible because I mean, we've all, we've all had those nights. Um, but like the report states this, this was basically like an hour, maybe a little over an hour later. So it really baffles me that even, even if he did just start pounding them down, it would it baffles me that he could get that much alcohol down, especially without getting sick or anything like that. Now, police also stated at first that they were certain foul play was involved in Ron's death. Had he been run off the road by the person who was writing the letters and called his house? Um, did someone force alcohol into his system somehow? Um, it's It's all still part of the mystery. Now, Paul was very vocal about his belief that Ron was murdered, and he said that Sheriff Radcliffe agreed with him. But for some reason, he changed his attitude the next time that they spoke, claiming that Ron's death was just simply a tragic accident due to drinking. And he said that he had actually taken a suspect into custody, they took a polygraph test, and they passed. But no information has been released on who that suspect was or why they were even believed to be involved in the first place. Now, not long after the accidents, the letters began arriving again, several which stated that Sheriff Radcliffe was involved in a cover-up. It also accused the town's physician and coroner, Ray Carroll, had sexually abused minors. Now, this was actually proven later to be true in 1993 when Carol was exposed as a serial sexual abuser. He was found guilty of multiple sex crimes, corruption of a minor, pornography, and many other things. And all I have to ask, seriously, what is going on with the people in this town? Because, really, man. And it's, it's not that big of a town. 12,000 people, and you have these serial sexual abusers, you have affairs going on, you have criminal acts, um, all these just, I mean, goodness. Now, although multiple people were receiving letters, they still mainly targeted Mary and Gordon, even going as far as to blame her for murdering Ron. And one of the letters sent to Mary stated, everyone knows what you have done. If you don't believe us, just make them mad and find out for yourself. When I came across this letter in my research, it actually made me kind of wonder because it says, if you don't believe us, and 
Now, it could just be something to throw you off the scent. It could just be just the way that they're um, um, pertaining to themselves. But does this mean that there was more than one person involved in writing the letters? Like, there had to be, right? A short time later, Paul and Karen were decided to get divorced. And Mary was actually letting Karen stay in a trailer on her property. And it was around this time that Mary admitted to having an affair with Gordon Massey. But she claims that it didn't start until after Ron's death. And she thought that the admission and honesty would stop the letters and earn her some peace. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. The letters flooded mailboxes after she came forward, especially Mary's. And the signs got even worse and began targeting Tracy more and more. One letter read, it's your daughter's turn to pay for what you've done. Now, this one is very similar to one before, except it didn't have the threat of shooting Tracy in the head. Um, In February of 1983, Mary was driving her school bus route when she saw a disturbing sign on the side of the road that graphically detailed an alleged affair between Gordon Massey and Mary's daughter, Tracy. And this dude seems to just get around. I mean, Jesus. Now, horrified... Mary pulled her bus over and began to pull the sign down. Now, as she did this, she realized that it was attached to a wooden box with twine. So she removed the sign and the strange box and took it home to inspect it. To her shock, inside that box was a gun held in place by two styrofoam blocks. And the twine string was actually connected to the trigger. And this was a lethal booby trap that failed because um, had Mary removed it a different way, that twine would have pulled on the gun, pulled on the trigger, and she would have been shot and possibly killed. Now, the good thing about this is that the gun gave authorities a major break in the case. Even though someone had attempted to file the serial number down, Sheriff Radcliffe turned the gun over to Ohio's Bureau of Criminal Investigations, who, through lab tests, were able to recover that serial number. And this led law enforcement to a man named Wesley, an employee at the local Columbus Anheuser-Busch Brewery. Does that sound familiar? Now, Only Wesley claimed he sold the gun to his supervisor and hadn't been in possession of it for quite some time. Now, who was Wesley's supervisor? Well, none other than Mary and Ron's brother-in-law, Paul Freshour. But why would Paul Freshour be doing this to his family, Mary um, and Ron's death? So authorities spoke to Karen, Paul's wife, who told him that she had actually found one of the torn up letters in their toilet. Uh, She found one inside a piece of furniture and several, several others throughout the home. She told cops that Paul was furious with Mary over her involvement with Massey and wanted to expose her. Now, let's keep in mind, at this time, Karen and Paul were going through this pretty nasty divorce, and she was at risk of losing her home, her money, and even the custody of her children. So I get that, like, while 
She's probably, you know, she's obviously somebody to talk to. I don't think she had the best intentions towards Paul when they questioned her. Now, Paul was cooperative with investigators, and but he held on to his innocence. He said that he didn't write the letters, and he even let police search his house. He also told police that he had no involvement with the sign booby trap, and that his gun had actually been stolen not long before it was found, and he believed that he was being framed. On February 25th, he actually went and met with, met with Sheriff Radcliffe, and during his questioning, they gave him a handwriting test. However, this wasn't your typical run-of-the-mill test. Instead of having Paul just write the letters out, they showed him the letters and had him try to replicate that block writing, and even had him um, like read the letters as he was writing them, which, I mean, as you can see, it's not that difficult and if i think anyone being told hey can you replicate and you know try to look the look match this as best you can i mean that's going to i mean what are what are we trying to do here <laughs> so after this they decided that his handwriting matched shocker and they gave him a polygraph test which he failed now, I will say the problem with polygraph tests is they aren't foolproof. They're not based on information or fact. Polygraphs are actually based on emotion. And there have been plenty of people who are telling the truth who fail because they're nervous. And you have people who are lying who pass because they either have no emotion or souls or they're just really good at lying and really good at controlling those emotions. And this is one reason why they're actually not admissible in court. Now, Paul is still arrested and charged with attempted murder, and he's released on a $50,000 bond. In March of 1983, he was indicted, and his trial was to start in October. Paul, still holding on to that innocence, which, I mean, I get it, had a lot of evidence against him. The box matched one from his workplace. He had motivation. Um, while Mary and Gordon denied the affair until after Ron's death, let's be honest, it was probably going on before. Um, maybe Paul learned of Mary's infidelity and decided to punish her and it just got out of hand. Um, and he had also taken February 7th off of work. And this was the day that Mary found that trap and took it home. Uh, handwriting experts claim his handwriting matched, but I really don't agree, agree with this one as they didn't really look at his handwriting in its genuine form. They just told him, hey, can you copy this? And he copied it and they went, oh my gosh, they match. So all of this evidence is circumstantial. They never found Paul's fingerprints on any of the letters. Um, the defense actually tried to keep the letters out of the trial as they weren't really connected to the reason he was on trial in the first place. But the judge allowed 39 letters to be used. Now, Karen said that she threw all of the letters that she had found away. So there wasn't really any proof that she had had them to begin with. Um, so, and like I said, um, plus, Paul had an alibi for most of the day. Multiple witnesses saw him at his house because he had taken the day off to have work done, so he didn't really go anywhere. 
Now, another bus driver testified during his trial to seeing a tall man with sandy blonde hair near the sign roughly about 20 minutes before Mary found it. Uh, He was leaning against a yellow El Camino, and when the bus driver passed by, he turned away, pretending to seem as if he was using the restroom and definitely trying not to be seen. Now, Paul had dark hair, was not a tall man, and he didn't drive an El Camino. But Karen's brother did drive an El Camino, and she was dating a man who fit that description pretty much perfectly. But, Karen said, who would be dumb enough to do something like that? Well, who would be dumb enough to put their own gun in the booby trap? So, (laughs) it took the jury only two and a half hours to return with a guilty verdict, and Paul was sentenced seven to 25 years in prison. The resident of Circleville, Ohio, could finally breathe easy. Except, the letters continued, even after Paul had gone to prison, even while he was in solitary confinement under strict security, even when Paul was strip-searched daily, and even when his mail was monitored, every letter coming in and every letter going out. The warden said there was no way he was sending them, unless he had somebody on the outside helping him. But hundreds hundreds of letters were still being sent to residents all over. And one local school official was actually killed in a car accident after receiving a letter. And I want to say coincidence, but I personally don't believe in coincidences in life. So, hmm. Now, the writer actually claimed responsibility for that death and threatened to do the same to other officials. Now, the prosecutor in Paul's trial... Roger Klein, was accused of murdering a pregnant woman. Now, I can't find any real, you know, proof or research on murdering a pregnant woman, but he was having an affair and was actually found to be the father of that child. Someone clearly had a vendetta against the residents of this town, and I don't know what they did to this person, but let me tell you what, they they were getting some revenge here. Now, Paul himself began receiving letters while in prison, and one of them actually stated, Now, when are you going to believe you aren't getting out of there? I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all. Now, some believe Paul sent these letters to himself to make it seem like he was innocent and being set up, but because I also wonder if somebody actually told him two years ago, whatever they told him, does he not remember this? Can he not like point the finger and be like, oh my gosh, this person and I, or this person has did it, these people over here, you know, like then there was at some point arsenic began getting sent in the mail. Now, no one was hurt, but I still think that Paul should have been like, they should have revisited Paul's trial because Even though his gun, sure, was found, but it was stolen. He should have reported that it was stolen, in my opinion. Um, But how is he getting arsenic sent? The warden. Multiple people are saying that he wasn't sending these letters. 
1993, Paul actually begged Unsolved Mysteries to look deeper into this case. And they actually received a letter stating, Forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you L sickos, you will pay. And it was signed the Circleville writer. They sent this to Unsolved Mysteries. People, what is happening? Like, what is going on with this town? These people are ridiculous. And the funny thing is, I actually kind of want to visit just to be like, what? Um, so now with Unsolved Mysteries, though, was the case getting too much attention than they were comfortable with? And they were actually close to being found out. So they were trying to deter people left and right and everything. Now, also in 1993, Thomas Lee Dillon, um, a convicted murderer uh, who had passed a past of violent behavior, obviously sentenced and, you know, serving life sentence for murder. Um, he claimed he was responsible for the letters, but he could never really be linked, although there were several similarities in his handwriting. Um, but of course, was it his handwriting or did they go, hey, copy this? So Paul was actually released in 1994, 10 years after he was um, put in prison, and he still, still denied writing these letters. But the letters stopped as abruptly as they began, and police believed that he was trying to help put an end to an affair, and Karen also claimed that he was abusive, and this is why he was, he believes that Karen had framed him. Now, Paul Freshour died in 2012. A private investigator said Paul was wrongfully convicted and it was based on flimsy evidence and he should have never gone to prison. In 2006, James Renner, who had grown up in Ohio and was always kind of obsessed with the case, he started investigating it. He found new evidence, and he actually interviewed people from before. And he thinks that it was actually a former school superintendent named Dwight L. Bowman who was responsible. He had motive, as he was fired from his former job, and he held a quite the grudge against the recipients. But he passed away in 2009, and he was never questioned. Now, the case was closed by the local sheriff's office and still remains unsolved, even if they did basically pin it all on Paul Freshour. But, so let's talk theories, because in my research, I found a lot of theories and so many things that people think and still hold on to today. So first, we have Paul, right? He was never technically convicted of like the letters and he was only really convicted of that one sign and booby trap but obviously that person who did the sign was who was doing the letters um but i feel he wouldn't have been as sloppy as he was with the gun you went how long with these letters getting away with it i mean it was what from 1976 to 1983 but, um from the time that the letter started to the sign was found. I mean, who, and seriously, once again, who would put their own gun in the booby trap, even with the serial number filed off? Okay, I just don't know if I can believe that Paul Freshour was the, the writer. The next we have Karen, Paul's ex-wife. Now, she definitely had motive for wanting to get rid of Paul. She had a lot to lose in the divorce, and it would 
all be hers again with him out of the way, right? So some say that their their son Mark helped out. And Paul actually stated that he felt Mark was responsible for stealing the gun, but he wouldn't report him because he didn't want him to get in trouble. Now, Paul, I mean, Mark, geez, Mark never went to see Paul while he was in prison, and for a while he struggled with a deep depression, and he actually ended up committing suicide in 2012. So Mary herself is thought to be the person sending the letters. Oh, let's go back to uh, Karen here, though, because the person that was seen at the sign, you know, the morning of, uh, fit her boyfriend's description and the car fit her brother's description. So I, I think, you know, I think that's a good, um, I mean, obviously circumstantial, it's not hard evidence, but if you're seen in the area with a car that, you know, I, I think, you know, she's a, she's a pretty strong contender. Okay, so Mary, um, she's actually thought to be the person sending the letters. She's also thought to be who killed Ron, um, so she could, you know, continue her affair or, you know, finally be with Gordon Massey uh, without it being controversial. Um, They think that she's also who stole Paul's gun. Maybe her and Karen were in on it together. Hmm. Um, And they also think she was the one who set up the booby trap or at least had knowledge of the booby trap because all of this would take attention away from herself. But how else would she know how to remove that trap? Like how, like with the sign, how would she know how to remove it without setting off the gun? Like, I mean, sure, it's not impossible, but if you're just going up and you're just fiddling around and this twine is connected to the gun trigger, like, that that really had to be a failed attempt. Now, my thing is, why would she do this? Um, why would she out the affair that she was having in such a public way? Um, wouldn't you just kind of do it quietly where no one got hurt or... Um, well, obviously not getting hurt beyond the idea that you're being cheated on, but Ron was killed. Like that's, that's quite, quite, um, extra for lack of a better term because they all escape me right now. (laughs) Now, Gordon Massey's son, William, is actually thought to be one of the suspects in this long list. Um, some of the letters were signed W. Uh, Most think that this meant writer, but could it have stood for William? Uh, Maybe he found out about his dad's affair and was mad at him and wanted to publicly humiliate him. And once again, it just got out of hand. Um, I feel like this is quite extensive. Plus, um, I couldn't really find his age. And I feel like he would have been younger at this time. So I don't know if that would have really been something somebody his age could have pulled off. Um, Now, David Longberry, the bus driver that Mary rejected, he's obviously on the list of theories and totally capable of being the perpetrator. Um, It was found as he, uh, it was found later that he sexually abused an 11-year-old girl in 1999 and he committed suicide sometime after that. And once again, this brings me back to the question of what is going on with the people in this town? Now, some think that it was a group of people, 
saying that after the first letter or so, other people just kind of jumped on the train and started airing their dirty laundry and their grievances towards other people, which I could see it being multiple people, but I don't think it was just random. I think it was people who knew each other. Um, some have actually wondered if it was a marketing campaign gone really, really wrong. Uh, but I kind of question what the hell kind would you be marketing here for this to be a marketing campaign? Like what, writing letters, paper, pen, stuff like that. Um, so I don't think that has anything to do with it. Um, some think it was a government conspiracy, but I really don't see why the government would just start targeting people like this. Um, like, I don't think they would, I really did I don't know. <laughs> I really don't think so. Uh, someone think it was, um, some think that it was someone with mental illness, which clearly it was someone with mental illness. However, I don't think it was just a random person. I think it was somebody who clearly had a vendetta or wanted to get revenge against, I guess, the town. Because um, I, I would say Mary, I mean, they really focused on Mary and Gordon. Uh, but I just, I, it's so hard to really pinpoint um, really just one specific person. Now, none of these theories have been proven. They're all speculative. The true identity of the writer has never been confirmed, nor the reason of why these letters were being sent. Um, whomever did it had access to a lot of residents' personal and private information. Um, but I think that this case should actually be a reminder and a warning of the power of words and what accusations can do to people, especially when, like they're not based on fact and they're just, you know, they're just defamation. Um, reputations were ruined. People were incarcerated on no real evidence. Paul lost 10 years of his life and other people, I mean, lives were lost to murder, suicide, and just, I mean, I don't understand how somebody what could be done to you that was so bad that you would do something like this to somebody else? That's my question. Um, but on that note, who do you think the Circleville writer was? Um, tell me your thoughts. Throw it in the comments. Uh, throw it on the social media posts. Anything like that. Now keep it courteous and respectful. Um, I will not put up with any bashing, crude, rude uh, comments like that. Anything like that. They will be handled accordingly. Um, but I definitely want to hear if you live in the area or if you live close to the area and you um, have more information or if it uh, has been solved in some recent time. Um, all of the kind of posts that I saw, the last one was from 2021 with my research and it still hadn't been um, really confirmed 100%. But let me know. Um, and on that note, I will see you next crime. Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces with Cassiopeia is a Pizza and Pigtails production. All episodes are researched, written, and edited by yours truly. You can find new episodes every Friday with bonus episodes coming out every other Tuesday. You can find the podcast on your favorite listening platform or now you can find it on YouTube as well. 
Don't forget to follow along on social media, creepycases.spookyspaces, for all future news updates and maybe some content that you won't find on the podcast. Also, be sure to subscribe so you can get access to bonus content, early access to content, and a couple of little thank you swag. If you'd like to contact me about appearing on a future episode, maybe you would like to suggest your own creepy case or spooky space, or maybe you'd also like to reach out about ad space, you can reach me directly at creepycases.spookyspaces at gmail.com or feel free to reach out through those social media platforms as well. And as always, see you next crime.